This episode was produced in partnership with Twisted Healthy Treats. It felt a bit like an ocean liner. When we decided to get out of retail and move into wholesale, the actual time that it took and the small decisions and the day-by-day sort of conversations and changes that we were making to the business, it really did take us 12 to 24 months to make that full transition. You know, if you push on a door and it doesn't open, you need to go and find another door. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. Have you ever found yourself feeling really lost and confused and unsure what steps to take next? Well, today we're chatting with Cass Spies. She is the founder of ice cream brand Twisted Healthy Treats. Cass started the brand in 2010. At the time, she was on mat leave with two kids under two and as a new mum, was a little bit confused about what to do next in her career. After some deliberation, she decided that instead of going back to a fast-paced corporate role, she'd start a business that allowed her to follow her passion, bring in cash and spend quality time with her kids. Her dream was to be the next Janine Ellis and create a frozen yogurt retail franchise, but things didn't pan out exactly as planned and she pivoted the business into wholesale. Now she owns her own manufacturing facility, she's on the shelves of Woolworths and Costco in the US, and she's got a range of product in over 5,000 school canteens across Australia. In this episode, Cass shared how getting into canteens helped save the business at a critical time, how she's moved away from being involved in absolutely everything to leading from a healthy distance, why she's financed her business via loans instead of investment, and why she listens to signs from the universe when making really tough calls. So um, back in 2010, I had very, very, very small children and um, had gone from working in a super fast-paced corporate environment to being at home um, with both my, uh, my, my eldest two children, who at that stage were both under the age of two. And I think, um, you know, if I was to reflect on that time, it was a real um, – time of questioning and wonder, wondering where I wanted to be and go in my life in terms of career and um, being a mom and, you know, really just where I wanted to go in my life. And I think that is really where the inspiration for starting um, Twisted came from, from, from that sort of period of reflection. It's funny, like I feel like a lot of women when they have kids and they come out of the corporate world um, – you know, have this desire to create a different kind of life that supports their family life and their kind of career aspirations. But, you know, starting a business on its own is hard. Starting a business when you've got two kids under two, like how did you, how did you find the time? Like how did you actually get going? Uh, look, honestly, if I was to give you the honest answer, I think I probably just started searching on Google. <laughs> um, so, Classic. <laughs> We've heard I that mean, a few times. Yeah, I mean, you can find a lot out on Google. Um, Googling, starting to call people. I mean, obviously, I had the inspiration for what I wanted to create, which at that time was a um, a retail format of a frozen yogurt and smoothie offering. 
uh, which is very different to the business that I have today. But at that point in time, that was very much what the inspiration was. Um, I'd, I'd seen the concept in the US and I hadn't seen it here in Australia. And I guess I wanted to bring together my entrepreneurial spirit, which I'd never really been able to access in corporate. Um, a degree that I had in food um, science and technology that I'd also never really used. Um, and I guess, like you sort of mentioned, you know, the, the, the feeling of wanting to have a life that enabled me to be a mother and fulfill that duty and also, you know, be, you know, be inspired in terms of my career and being able to fulfill that for myself. So I think that's really, I really, honestly, I really just started Googling and I, from there, I kind of just went down the rabbit hole and here we are. <laughs> but what about from a time perspective? Because I mean, not, Google was able to assist you with the knowledge side of things, but you, again, having two kids and sure. a, a job and, and considering this transition into owning your own business, how do you find efficiencies in your day? Uh, I mean, at that stage, I used to do a lot when the kids would be sleeping during the day. I would do a lot at the end of um, at the end of the day. And to be completely honest, I have an incredible support system. So my mother was amazing, and she really sort of stepped in and helped um, helped with the kids while I got the business off the ground. She was incredible, and I don't think I would ever, you know, I would never sort of want to sit here and say, you know, I'm a superwoman and I managed to do it all because there are a lot of people involved in supporting my vision and, and my journey along the way. And, and that still happens today. Um, mm. You know, there's, it takes a village, like they say, and that is absolutely the case when it, when it comes to starting a business. You know, you need to really have an incredible support system around you to enable you to step into that, um, into, into, into that goal and that vision. So what was that vision in the early days? You said that you obviously started as a retail business. You're very, uh, you play in a very different space now, but back then, what was that long vision, like that long-term vision? So my vision, to be completely frank, was to be the next Janine Ellis. So she is an incredible um, female entrepreneur. I think she's done amazing things with Boost Juice and consequently her other retail uh, businesses. And I wanted to roll out a franchise network of stores across the country. And I think what we realized very quickly is that um, – you know, retail is a bit of a black art. So we had some stores that were doing incredibly well and some stores that were doing incredibly not well. And so what we ended up with was a, was a, um, a portfolio of company-owned stores where some were making money and some were losing a lot of money. Um, and it was just, we just couldn't, you know, hand on heart, Look at rolling that out as a franchise business to uh, to other to other um, people across the country because we couldn't really understand how we could make much money out of that concept. I mean, that's that's the honest truth. It, it's a lot. It's a lot. You're dealing with the likes of Westfield. Um, you know, a lot of your turnover is going to rent, um, and you're also dealing. You know, each uh, the average check in a store like that is sort of five between five and eight dollars. So, in order to be able to pay for staff, electricity, product, rent, you know, you're having to turn over a lot of money. And I think that was really, um, I think that was really the learnings of that time. It's a bit of a catch-22 when it comes mm. to retail, isn't it, in the sense that, you know, you like uh, retail is driven by foot traffic and your um, your space, the space that you're in and the location, is real estate is really, really important, but prime real estate costs more. So did you find this sort of push and pull between 
the, the locations that were really prominent were doing really well, but they cost more to operate. Look, 100%. And I think the other thing in that space, in that QSR space, that quick service restaurant space, is that you're up against the likes of, in certain in certain parts of their menu offering, but you're up against the likes of McDonald's um, mm-hmm. and Boost Juice and these other companies, and they are at a level where they can innovate and advertise um, with the sorts of investments that you just can't do as a startup. You, it just, you just don't have access to that um, as a startup. So I think, you know, in terms of personally, that you know, at the time I can remember feeling very much like a failure because it didn't matter how many hours of work I put into the business, how many hours of work my incredible team put into the business. Mm. But just whatever we were doing was not really moving the needle um, to, to where we needed it to be. And, you know, whilst, I, you know, I remember fondly the time, you know, having a store, I mean, I loved having the stores. It was so much fun. One of the stores that we had was in my suburb. So all the families that I knew, you know, lots of my mates or my kids' friends, they all used to come to the store and it was incredible community feeling. But, um, you know, you can't, you can't sustain a business like that that isn't, that isn't making money for a long time. And I think we wouldn't have the business today if it hadn't been for that journey because what mm. that journey allowed us to do was to see that people liked to take our product home and enjoy it in the comfort of their own home. Mm. Um, and so, you know, whilst, whilst we lost a lot of money and that's never fun, it really did um, set us on the path that we have now um, firmly been on for the last sort of six to seven years. Yeah, wow. I mean, it sounds it's it's almost like a very expensive uh, test exercise, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, as you said, sometimes you have to go through these uh, failures in order to see the opportunity. Would you call it a pivot, or would you call it following the path of least resistance by making that transition? to wholesale from retail? Um, I think I'd probably call it both, to be honest. I mean, it was it was a pivot, but pivot, the word pivot um, to me gives a sense of quickly turning and it didn't happen quickly. So it really, it, for me, it felt a bit like an ocean liner. When we decided to get out of retail and move into wholesale, the actual time that it took and the small decisions and the day-by-day sort of conversations and changes that we were making to the business, it really did take us, you know, 12 to 24 months to make that full transition. But absolutely, you know, I think I'd likened it when I was, when we were sort of working through it with the team was that, you know, if you push on a door and it doesn't open, you need to go and find another door. And that's what it felt like. You know, we were pushing on this door for retail and it's a passion of mine and I would have loved to have had an incredibly successful franchise network of stores, but the door just wasn't opening. And yet we'd be selling product into a wholesale perspective or we'd be having product in school canteens and the door was just sort of flying wide open and people were loving the product. And so, yes, um, definitely path of least resistance, but, you know, it was, um, it, it was, it took a long time to really turn the business that 180 degrees. How did you phase that transition? Like, did you start by shutting down the non-profitable stores and then starting to go out and pitch um, to distributors or, you know, the Woolies of the world? before shutting down the profitable stores? Like how did you actually manage the sort of the, the phases of that transition? Yeah, pretty, actually pretty a lot, pretty much like how you've um, positioned it there. So we shut down the stores that were losing a lot of money really quickly, but that's never that never happens quickly and it's always a negotiation because you're locked into leases 
and people like Westfield don't really like to let you out of leases. So um, <laughs> that was fun. Um, so, yes, we shut that, We shut down the, the loss-making stores as soon as we could. You know, we just had mm. to look at – I had to look myself in the mirror and say, personally, you know, you're not a failure but this hasn't worked. What do we do to get out of it and stop – and we needed to stop the flow of cash. So that we, – we really focused on that. The stores that were making some money, we just let the lease run, it, run its course – um, and we started, um, we moved into a small factory, which was pretty scary because when we first moved into a factory, we really only needed to do one, maybe one or two days of production a week. And so having that overhead of a factory and a production room and a, you know, food safe space and staff and, you know, without sort of guaranteed work five days a week was pretty scary. Um so, you know, it was a bit of a leap of faith. I think all these things are. You can do numbers until you're blue in the face. You can forecast, you know, till the end of time. But it's really, um, you know, I think you have to believe in your product. You have to believe in your mission and you have to really go after it, you know, after, after you've done all that analysis. Was it that belief that kept you going? Because I imagine trying to reposition an ocean liner is not an easy job. I mean, you're kind of, as you said, closing down one side of the business and creating opportunity in another area of the business. I mean, you're having to manage that balance that you've obviously got a lot of stakeholders involved. Was there any point where you're like, am I going to be able to turn this ship around? Oh, there's been heaps of those points. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple. Uh, yeah. Um, or, or when the ship was about to sink, maybe that's a, probably a better analogy. <laughs> I mean, I look, I think, I mean, I've spoken about this a lot, but the, the, the real um, – the, the, the game-changing moment in our business, in the history of the business, is when our, our products started to be sold in school canteens. That was a huge and important part of the business and that was really what I was at a very low point um, in my love and passion for the business. I was asking myself all sorts of questions about why, why I had gone on this journey and why I was doing what we were doing and why, I mean, I had this incredible team of people around me that believed in the vision and I was sort of asking myself all these questions about, you know, is this the right decision? And that's when our product got picked up by school canteens and, as I said, that was just huge. So we... Um, we started to I, I dropped some some a small amount of uh, yogurt cups off to my children's school. They sold really well. One of the ladies at the school said to me, "You should be going to every school in Sydney and selling this product." So out I went, and we I think we got something like seventy schools direct, and from there wow. we got picked up by distributors. And that was the game changing moment because what that meant was that that sort of all our sort of supermarket lines. Um, Everything else that we've done, everything else we've done in food service was all sort of based off that um, that sort of jumping off point of, of working with school canteens. It was a mass sampling campaign. Um, people were mm. starting to recognise the brand. And from there, you know, today, fast forward today, and we're in 5,000 school canteens across the country. So that was a real turning point in the business. And if it hadn't been for that, I'm not sure. I, I'm not really sure what today would look like, to be honest. It was, it was, a, real, it was a real game changer. Isn't it funny how there are moments of just like synchronicity or there are moments that just the timing is just so perfect and so right and it's like mm. it's almost a bit spooky? Well, yeah, it's funny that you say that because I um, I also think there's moments when um, without sort of getting a bit too woo-woo but the universe is sort of giving you a message that you should not be going down this path and I have – 
in my journey with Twisted, I have pushed through those moments and said, no, universe, we are going to do this and it's been the wrong decision. So I do like to, um, I do really believe in those moments of synchronicity. I, I'm a big believer in that. And I think, um, I think what I've sort of learned over the last 12 to 13 years of having the business is sometimes it's very important to sort of stop um, take stock, you know, have a moment of clarity before sort of just pushing through because, you know, that that was what the business plan said we were going to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big believer in that. Do you have any examples of when you, like, didn't listen to a sign or, you you know, you, you saw a sign and you were like, mm, shut up, this doesn't yeah. fit my plan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it was when we opened our, uh, our fourth retail location. So, the shopping centre that we wanted to open it in said, oh, no, we don't want a concept like that. And I, was, and I was just determined to have a site at this particular shopping centre. And so I pushed and pushed and pushed and we ended up getting the spot and we opened the store and it was a complete disaster. And so that's really my, um, you know, I call it my Broadway moment when we're talking about other things <laughs> that happen. And there's some, some things like this come up all the time. Um, you know, it's it's – it's not always the right decision if, if um, you know, the signs are pointing you in a different direction and you're getting a no, no, no. It's not always the right decision to sort of forcibly push your way into that, into where you thought you needed to be. It's an interesting conversation, I think, because a lot of the rhetoric around entrepreneurship is like persistence, grit, you know, never give up. And there is an element of that, I think, many founders get to the point like you where they question, is this worth it? Like, am I in the right, going in the right direction? But I think there is also something to be said for just like letting go a little bit, but it's hard to know when to continue pushing and when to just stop and accept whatever fate, you know. It is, yeah, it is hard. And I mean, I think that comes with time and years of experience and probably maturity, I would have to say. And I think, you know, I'm you know, 12 years older than when I made that decision. Um, and I think, um, I think that really just comes, yeah, from, from experience to, to be able to make those calls. Cause I don't, I mean, grit and determination and getting back up when you've been knocked down is absolutely, you know, that's a daily must do in terms of having your own business, but that sort of, um, you know, being sort of shown that this potentially is in the right way to go, I think is yeah. I mean, I think that really just comes from the experience and the years of of the years of running a business like this. Hmm. So, Cass, I want to talk about the transition to wholesaling and being able to secure um, those school canteens. I mean, you said that you were able to go out and secure seventy kind of right off the bat. I imagine then that keeping up with production is the next challenge. You produce all of your um, Twisted Healthy treats. Was that an advantage back then? Did you have the space, the capability to be able to scale as rapidly as it sounds you were with these school canteens and beyond to be able to fulfill all these orders? Um, Look, I think our ability to scale rapidly is something that we are still dealing with today. So I think it's a, it's a huge advantage that we produce our own product. There isn't many, um, there are no, I'm not going to say there isn't many, there are no brands of our size in this country that have their own factory like we do and it is a huge advantage. Um, but I mean, even today, we're still talking about how do we meet these orders? How do we scale? What's the next investment? What's the next piece of kit that we need to purchase? Um, so it's a it's a huge um, 
I mean, I think we probably run our business quite differently to other um, smaller brands in the market in that everything that we make gets invested back in the business. Um, and that's, uh, but, but what that allows us to do is, you know, we are not at the beck and call of somebody else's manufacturing plant. We are able to, um, we're able to, you know, change the way that we produce to meet certain demands. We're able to look at, you know, we're able to turn new products um, from R&D to, you know, a production in a very, very short amount of time, which I really think is a huge advantage in um, the FMCG space. And I think, um, you know, it's really just been an iteration. So back in the day when we first were working with school canteens, it was really just a very small, very small wholesale um, room out the back of our Bondi Beach store. Then we moved to this, this factory that we were in for um, seven years in Alexandria. Started off small, running one day a week with small pieces of kit. Then we purchased more kit. Then we were running that facility six or seven days a week. Then we moved to our brand new facility here in um, in the western suburbs in Sydney, and where running our current lines in this facility six days a week. Once we get some new new um, production lines, we'll probably drop back down to four. So it's, re- it's really just that. I mean, mm. it's really the same the same challenge over and over again, just in, in slightly different um, size, volumes and production runs. What about when you land a deal that has a huge and rapid impact on your sales? So in 2020, you landed a deal with Costco that increased your sales by 70%. So, I mean, a huge increase in sales, but also at a time when the world was shutting down. How did you manage that? Um, teamwork. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that easy. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, no, honest. No, I mean honestly. I mean the team around me are incredible. Um, it was sort of all hands on deck. It was a, a, an opportunity that we couldn't turn down. It was Costco in the USA. It was something that we'd been working on for a long time um, as an aspirational product uh, project, and the fact that it actually came to fruition was just so exciting for every single person in in the in the business um and so you know without being flippant it really just is teamwork it is literally how do we make this happen talk to our suppliers mm-hmm. explain what a great opportunity is how quickly can we make this happen really timeline it out um to make sure that we can we can meet the meet the the, the needs that the customer was looking for i mean really it was really just we really just threw the kitchen sink at it, um, and from and from that sort of first opportunity that we were given in the US, we've really just doubled down on that year on year. Mm. And was it um, just distribution with a certain number of stores to begin with, and has that then grown over time? It has. So when we first started, we were we were working with the Texas region in. Um, uh, in the US, Costco, Texas, and now we supply, I think it's eight of their regions, so all around the coast um, we supply. So, yeah, so it's really, it's been, it's been that part of the business has just been, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really strange experience because it takes a long time to lock in the deal, 
purchase the Mm. packaging, make the product, put it on a ship, send it to the US and it literally gets there and it's it's gone in like a couple of weeks. So it's a very, it's a very, I mean, the US market excites and, um, you know, is something that I just, I'm I'm very interested in and is something, is a really exciting opportunity for us. Mm. Um, It's huge and massive and our product really resonates with the US buyers. Um, and I think that's brand Australia. I think that's the quality of our product. I think that's the quality of our dairy um, that is really resonating with those US consumers. And I think that is, um, yeah, it, it's an area of the business that I, you know, I, I, I love working on. It's, it's, it's something I'm really passionate about. And what about China? Because you've started exporting into China. And I mean, that just sounds incredibly complicated. <laughs> Yeah, look, it is, and it's it's really only small scale at the moment. It, it the the cold chain in China makes me nervous, and that's really, you know, if I always say and to my team, next time I in my next life I'll come back and we'll have an ambient product that we don't have to worry about being frozen because the frozen mm, yeah. aspect of our product mm. just adds a whole other level of. Um, logistics and management, and you know, ensuring that it's kept frozen and the and the quality is maintained. I mean, I think so. China is we're doing a small amount in China. I don't, you know, I don't want to. We we have started and and it's been really well received. But like you said, it's it's there. There's lots of challenges around um, making sure the product gets from Australia to wherever it's being distributed in in, in the right you know, no brand damage, you know, quality control and enjoy it the way that it's meant to be enjoyed. So I think there's, there's, we're starting on that journey, but it's, it's really, we're really at, at the, in the infancy. What have you learned so far as you're journeying down this pathway? I mean, exporting, you know, product, aside from those challenges that you've just mentioned, what have you learned? What are some of the pitfalls that, you know, potentially someone that's looking to export or sell their product overseas can look out for? Um, my, I think my main thing would be make sure you've got the right insurance in place. So all those, you know, 1% risks that you might write down on a list, they probably will happen. So, you know, we've had full containers of stock that have melted at the wharf before they've even left Australia. We've had product arrive in the US that has melted. Um, and so my, I think my major, my major advice for anybody looking at, it, at export is make sure you've got the right insurances in place because those, those small, tiny risks that you think will never happen usually do. <laughs> yeah. Good advice. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Things that you can't, yeah, you can't even dream up. They, they normally mm. happen. <laughs> yeah. I want to like understand your psyche a little bit in those moments because I think the way that we respond, the stories that we tell ourselves, the the I guess the mindset, the psychology that we have in those moments where shit just hits the fan um, really is important in terms of dictating what happens next. What is going on in your brain when you're putting out spot fires, when you're hemorrhaging money or your containers of products melted or, you know, what are you saying to yourself when just stuff goes totally wrong? Um, that's actually a really good question. Look, I th- and I think that's something that I, um, for me, that's probably personally something that I have needed to work on 
during my time as, um, you know, CEO of Twisted in that I probably, you know, back in, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I probably didn't handle it well. So, you know, sheer panic is probably one of the first things that comes into my mind. How are we going to afford this? Um, what impact does that have to the business? What impact does that have to the brand? Um, and, you know, re- to be completely honest, I haven't always dealt with these situations in a mature way and I haven't always dealt with them very well as the leader of this business. And I think, um, but I think, you know, with the years of experience that I've had with this business, I think I'm I'm not as shocked now when things go wrong. Um, a lot of the issues that we have, we come across, we've had before. And mm-hmm. I think it's important for me as a leader to really be very calm and be very clinical and be very um, focused about bringing the right people around the table to resolve the problem that we have in the best in the best way possible. But, you know, it, that has been a real, gro- a real learning for me and a real area of growth for me because I think the emotion, you know, I mean, Twisted is, is, feels like my fourth child. Um, and so I'm very emotionally involved in the business. So when things go wrong, um, you know, the sort of person I am, my natural tendency is to be quite emotional and quite vocal about things. And so I think, um, I would like to think that I am on a growth trajectory there in terms of being able to deal with them in a more, um, as a leader of, of, of my sort of business should be able to deal with them. Yeah. And I think, that growth often happens when you are in those chaotic moments and you find a way through, you know, yeah. and you can kind of draw on that, that experience and that strength the next time you're thrown into yeah the fire pit. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's something that I think about and, you know, my leadership style and how the sort of leader that I want to be in terms of the business that I'm growing and where I want to be, you know, five, 10 years from now. And I think it's really important that, you know, there needs to be less emotion and more sort of clear leadership out of these sort of these sort of scenarios. Uh, what does that leader look like in five years? I mean, I, I totally hear you in saying, you know, you have to be clear and you know, got to communicate, and maybe there's removing some of the emotion. But is there a risk of of removing too much of the emotion and becoming a bit of a a clinical leader? Oh, no, no. I mean, no. I don't mean. I don't. Would I would never. Um, no, no, I don't mean I don't mean that, but I think I think the leader that I want to be, you know, five, ten years from now, is something that you. I, I think it's is a leader that has more confidence around the product that we have in the market, more confidence around the fact that our customers are there are people in the market looking for our product, more confidence around the fact that we have earned our position on the shelf in the domestic supermarket. So in Coles and in Woolworths, and we've earned our position on the shelf in Costco, our product sells. We make incredible product. It's high quality. We invest in the business. Um, so I think it's, it's more around, um, you know, I think it's quite interesting. I feel recently I've sort of felt this transition where I feel like I work for Twisted as opposed to it's being my business. So I mm-hmm. think, you know, Twisted's sort of grown beyond me. Um, which is really exciting. And I think, um, you know, I feel like I'm the custodian of a business. Um, and, you know, there are 50, 60 people here that work for the business and I'm the one that is making the decisions, um, to, you know, to make sure that we're successful for everybody on the team. And so I think, um, I think that's a real, that's a real change for me in terms of my leadership style, because I think in past, 
years, I've just been so excited to get ranging at whatever cost to get the product on the shelf. Oh, so exciting. I think now it needs to be what's the right decision for the business? Is this the right call? Is this the right direction? Is that the right amount of money to spend on a particular marketing asset? I think it's it's quite a different it's a quite a different way to approach um, running running the business. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you explained that quite well. And I thought it was interesting that you used the word confidence. Do you think that confidence has ever held you back? Were you confident in your ability um, as a leader, confident in your product, confident in your ability to sell? And yeah, has confidence, I suppose, ever, ever held you back? Yeah, look, I think, of, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I definitely don't lack confidence in selling. That's probably that I can probably sell. I'm probably, I am a sales, salesperson, saleswoman, whatever you want to say. Um, that is really probably one of my strengths. I think confidence in our ability to deliver, confidence in the quality of our products, confidence in our formulation is something that we have been working on in the last sort of six to seven years. And I'm now, you know, now I can sort of proudly stand here and say we are best in class in the products that we create. We are best in class in terms of the formulations that we have put on the market and we're best in class in terms of the the quality of the product that we make. But that is something that has – it has – has come with time, has come with investment, has come with the changes that we make all, you know, each and every day to the business. So yeah, that that's something that's grown definitely um, over the last sort of five to five to eight years. When it comes to leadership, what have you learned over the last 12 years? Like what do you know now about leadership that you had no clue about back in 2010 or even five years ago? Um I th- yeah, I mean, really, return authority. I guess is probably the best um, way to describe what I know now versus what I knew, knew back then. You know, if I if I'm going to grow, if we are going to grow a business to the size that we want to grow this business, there is absolutely no way that we can do that if I'm involved in every decision and every part of the business. And I think. And that, and that, and that again, it comes with time and size and scale. And, you know, when I first started the business, I was involved in every single conversation, but then you get to a point where I'm just a bottleneck. Um, and also I've got, I now have people on the team who are specialists in their area and they, and I need to be able to trust that they are Mm -hmm. doing, um, their job to the level of quality that we need them to do that, to do that job. So it's really, learning to get out of the detail and really working, I mean, it's so cliche, but working on the business, not in the business, but it really is a really, it is a real thing. Um, and there are days when I work on the business and there are days where I work in the business. Um, and I think, um, I, I, you know, so I, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm not separated from the business. I don't want to give that impression, but I think mm. the I need to sort of I need to sort of get my nose out of things that don't really concern me really is what is yeah. <laughs> I'm really yeah. sort of dipping in and out of areas that other people have got under control and that just ends up causing chaos. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that is sort of, you know, I mean, we've interviewed a lot of founders and it can be hard to let go of that control, but also once you have the team in place that are incredibly capable and you trust to make the right decisions, I imagine that must be I mean, there would be a lot of pride in that, you know, take, getting the business to a point where actually it doesn't necessarily need you to run. Maybe it needs you to grow, but it doesn't necessarily need you to run day to day. 
Yeah, well, and that that needs that has to be the goal, right? The business has to run without me, and that's I think that kind of links back to where I was saying recently. I feel like the business is it's mm-hmm. it's bigger than me, and I I mean I'm working for Twisted now, um, and I th- so I think that's a real um, a, a real step change in in my whole approach to how we're how we're managing the business. So you mentioned earlier that um, you know you invest everything back into the business, and a lot of founders do do this, especially in those early days. That's how you keep the business alive. Um, have you ever sought external investment? Has it just been purely you know investment um, from yourself, family? Like what does that? What does the structure look like? Because I also imagine setting up a facility, producing your own product. Like that, these are not. These aren't, this is, that's not a cheap exercise. Um, and, and now you've got, you know, lots of staff. And as you said, the, the whole engine's, you know, continuing to grow and grow. So what, what does that kind of look like? Can you talk us through it? Sure. So um, the original business was um, set up uh, 50-50, myself and my husband and my, my parents, 50-50. So that sort of real family business feel. Um, in terms of how the structure looks today, um, we have we still have not sought we still have not sought outside capital. Uh, but we have we've, we have an incredible bank. Um, so you know we have working capital facility, we have equipment loans in place. And it's really just been that um, you know, bit by bit, um, you know, investment. So it's, um, you know, this, uh, we're just about to put in a brand new, um, mixed plant into our facility. So that will, that will be the 2022 project. So the 2023 project will be, uh, an onsite freezer room, you know, these, mm. so it's really that sort of, you know, whilst I'd love to say, um, let's, you know, spend 5 million bucks and, um, you know, put, invest, get the, get the facility to where we need it to be. It needs to be a step-by-step and it also needs to match our demand, right? So I don't want to have this state-of-the-art facility with $5 million worth of brand new equipment and not having the, not having the demand. And so I think that's really, that's really the way that we've approached the business to date. I'm not, I don't know, I don't know if we'll, we'll always approach it like that and whether, I mean, I would never say never, never say never to any sort of option, around what the future may hold. But right now, that's the way that we've funded the business. Why did you decide to go with um, bank loans rather than seeking external investment? What was the reason? Um, I think control, I guess, control. Mm. Um, and uh, it just really made sense from a numbers perspective at the time. But yeah, control. I think. I think once you start to get external investors, there's other voices that um, come in and need to be heard. And I think at, at this at certain times on the on the growth trajectory that we've been on, when we've been considering that, it, I haven't really wanted to drown out my own voice because you know I think I am very clear about where we're headed, um, where we need to be in the market, where our price point sits. You know, and, and I think there's a lot. Of and I think um, I don't think we're ready for external investors. Really, to be completely frank. So, what is that next phase of growth? What is the vision? Like, where are you going to be in ten years? So, um, I think um, a couple of areas that um, I, I can really see us leaning into. So, first of all, we will be we're starting to launch products. That are not in the freezer, which is exciting. So we oh. rebranded ourselves from Twisted Frozen Yogurt to Twisted Healthy Treats about 
five years ago um, and we have a product, an ambient product hitting the market in the next um, six months, which is super exciting. So that's the first entree into other sort of healthy treats and really leveraging that brand equity and that trust that we've built up with our consumer base. Um, Obviously, as I've already alluded to, the US market excites me a lot and how we sort of double down on what we've done over there and really lean into the opportunities in front of us is a huge um, part of the, the strategic vision for the next five to 10 years. Um, and I think once we, you know, complete another um, another sort of round of investment in the facility here, I think I'd like to look at um, manufacturing other people's products as well because, mm. you know, it, it is a real... Um, it is something special that we have here, having our own factory, and I think it would be it'd be great to work with you know small up and coming brands um, to help them bring their product to market. Yeah, uh, that's that sounds so exciting. Also, I love that you know having your own facility now does open you up to these opportunities to work with other brands. I mean, that's probably not what you had in mind. You know, Never. when you started the business, I mean, Never. that's, isn't that fantastic? Like that you, yeah, no, yeah. it's really exciting. It's really exciting. And I, I mean, I think I, I, I do think I probably downplay the fact that we've got our own factory. Yeah. It comes with all its challenges. You know, every day it's like, how's the, and what's, what piece of machinery is broken <laughs> <Yeah>. today? <laughs> um, but it's, um, yeah, it's really exciting. Really exciting. Super exciting. And so aside from kind of going on what sounds like a bit of a leadership journey as well over the next kind of few years, and it probably never stops, let's be honest, what else are you What else are you interested in learning, understanding? It could be personal, it could be work-related. What are some other kind of interests that you're going to be diving into? Uh, I mean, I think I'm always super interested in wellness. I mean, I, I think that is probably a real focus for me as I age, to be completely honest, and understanding how wellness really plays into that overall mindset and and mental health mm. um, aspect. I think I've got some huge and challenging years ahead of me having teenage children and understanding how I can help um, help raise incredible humans that go out into mm. the world and are resilient and, you know, happy with where they land um, as they leave the nest. I think that's probably something that's a real focus for me as well. Um, And really just, as you said, just continuing to ask the questions around how I'm running the business, what kind of leader I am, what are we doing right, what are we not doing right, how could we do better, where are we not, you know, where are we failing, where are we succeeding. I think I'm a big you know, I don't ever like to sort of stay stagnant. I don't ever like to think that I have all the answers. And I think it's important to sort of draw on other people's experience, listen to lots of um, experts in different fields and decide which, you know, which bits of, which nuggets of information you're going to take forward in your life and, and which you're not. I mean, I think that's something that I, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a personal growth journey, I guess, in all aspects of my life. It's a love that. All right, we have one final question uh, to wrap up this episode. We always like to ask our guests, what's one piece of advice, life advice, business advice, general advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, without sounding corny, can I say trust your gut? Yeah, sure. you I can mean, say whatever you want to say. <laughs> trust your gut and I think, you know, the older I get, the more years in business that I have, 
it's it's really important to drown out everybody else's noise and listen to listen to what your gut is telling you because in in hindsight so many decisions that I've taken in this business that potentially were that were not the right decision I knew deep down that they were not the right decision and I and I went against how I was I listened to others I took advice from others um, I listened to the noise instead of turning the volume down on that and letting and letting your gut, letting your gut really speak to you. So I would, I mean, I know it's a bit cliche, but on, honestly, the, the the older I get, the more I realise how important that is. Can I just ask you a question off the back of that? When you say, so someone put it to me the other day, which I thought was really interesting because a lot of people do say trust your gut, and I'm like, well, maybe everyone's gut is saying a different thing, or or. Um, responds in a different way would you say that your gut is aligned to your values and you're actually making decisions based off of your values absolutely absolutely I think values is an incredibly important an incredible an incredibly important asset in all aspects of life but even I we talk about values all the time even here at Twisted you know the, the management team that I have around me are around me because we all have the same value set and we all run, you know, we run, it, it, it's such an important part of um, everything really. I mean, the business itself, Twisted has its own set of values because of the people within within the construct of Twisted that have a set of values. So, yes, I think it probably is absolutely value-driven, 100%. That's actually a really good way of looking at it. Gosh, there was a lot to take away from that conversation, but I really liked this idea of following the path of least resistance. I think as founders, we often have really clear visions, really strong visions about where the business is going. And when things don't go to plan, which is literally all the time, it can be really difficult to adjust or to let go of parts of that vision. But as Cass said, it's really important not to be rigid and don't continue bashing your head against a brick wall. If something isn't working, go where the money is, go where the customers are and follow what is working. And secondly, this is related, but I hope this episode acts as a very small reminder to listen to signs from the universe. It will tell you if you're on the right path. Okay, that's it for this episode. You know the drill. Follow along on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you click that follow button so you get pinged whenever we release a new episode. And come and join us. We're at Instagram at lady.brains. <laughs>